We're going to have our Bible reading in a few moments, but I just wanted to tell you about uh, something uh, that I discovered this week as I was looking through Instagram. Uh, Anybody else on Instagram here? Yeah, sort of subtle. Hands up Facebook. Yeah, a few Twitters. Snapchat users. You're a Snapchat user, aren't you? That's the right way of saying it. Something like that. Anyway, I was looking through Instagram and people's Instagram stories and Instagram posts. And it was amazing. I saw some absolutely stunning photographs um, of beautiful people. And I saw uh, some of my friends and people I follow uh, posting pictures of absolutely gorgeous views. And, and then I found look, myself looking at some absolutely amazing looking meals as well. Do you, does this resonate? Is this what your like uh, Facebook or Instagram posts are like? Uh, and then I got to uh, another one where a friend of mine had just uh, succeeded in completing an Ironman, absolutely mad. Somebody else was uh, training for a half marathon and posted all these posts about that and I was like these photographs are amazing and just show how many amazing people uh, that I know in the world and then something struck me because then I went and looked at somebody else's Instagram and this girl had posted some of those absolutely stunning pictures that you see sometimes on social media. I honestly think she had proper professional backlighting. Uh, she had absolutely perfect makeup. She had that thing where a hipster, I can't even do it, like that, where your hipster stands out. <laughs> They're going to mock me about that all week. Um, you know, and she had this really great pout, which I can't do because I smile a bit too much to do a pout. But I also thought those pictures were absolutely beautiful. She looked absolutely stunning. But I was sort of stopped in my tracks because I know that this girl um, suffers from real anxiety in her life. And it's been a problem for her for some time. I also know uh, that she has some real friendship issues that she's been working uh, through as well. So underneath all those beautiful pictures, there was another reality that she was living as well. And then I looked at my own Facebook. Uh, I don't put very much on Instagram. Uh, There's a picture on Facebook. That's not the latest picture, but there is another one very similar uh, to that that I posted today. And apart from the odd, uh, you know, political comment or Christian comment or advert about something that's going on at P's and G's or comedy moment that I want to share about my children, um, generally, all the pictures that I've posted recently are me at a wedding me at a family party with my family, uh, us at another wedding, us on holiday looking tanned and having fun together as well. It's funny, isn't it, that actually our normal, what we see as normal, isn't necessarily the reality. How life is presented, how I present my life on social media, is that the full picture? Is that the whole picture? It can make us, can't it, have such high expectations of what our lives should be like when we look at Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is you use. Because we see this image of perfection, the perfect life, the life that we all want to lead, or the look that we all want to have. 
And when it doesn't quite turn up like that, turn out like that, or when our lives don't match up to this image that we see all the time, then it can be really tough. When we hit hard times in our lives, we can think, why is that happening to me when everybody else is at a party looking beautiful? We can't cope because we think life is not meant to be like this. Everyone else is having a perfect life after all, and, and mine isn't matching up. But this is not my life. This is not my life. Life is not a series of Snapchats or Facebook or Instagram posts. Life is much more normal. It's sometimes much more difficult. It's sometimes quite painful. We sometimes sit in our pajamas at home, looking like death warmed up, don't we? Nod, it's not just me. We sometimes feel lonely at the end of the day when we come in and nobody else is there. We sometimes get worried about stuff that's going on in our lives. We just sometimes feel completely fed up. And sometimes we look absolutely awful, all of us. But if these are the pressures that are on us and the expectations that are on us, that's why we need resilience. Resilience to cope with this world that we live in. Resilience is one of these words that you hear a lot of. Uh, I know some schools teach resilience now as part of their curriculum. Resilience. Resilience is a, a really important word. Resilience is not just about avoiding these challenges of life or learning how to navigate the Instagram life that we all desire or just because we find exams hard, for example, it doesn't mean that we can avoid them. The reality of life is still tough. So we need to learn resilience so that when we're stressed out by our exams, we can dig down deep and actually get on with it, get the bus, and go and take that exam. When our boss is making our life difficult at work, or when we fail at something and we don't quite reach the grade, or when we face difficult moments with our friends or in our families, we need to learn resilience so that we don't just survive these times hanging on by our fingertips, but actually we grow through them and we thrive because of them. That's resilience. Resilience is how we cope with and we spring back from some of the challenges that real life is about. I think that what we're going to see in our Bible reading today just gives some amazing insight into how Jesus manages uh, to be resilient through some pretty harsh experiences that he has. So we're going to have our Bible reading now uh, from Luke uh, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, reading through to verse 11. And if you're following this in the Church Bibles, you can find it on page 1033. On Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands, and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thanks, Alistair. So the first thing that strikes me um, about this passage is that things are really tough for Jesus at this point. In fact, at this point in his ministry, he's really starting to face the flack. Um, Up to this point, in his first year of his ministry, he's actually been having a great time in lots of respect. He's like, you know, celebrity vicary type person, celebrity rabbi uh, in today's terms. That would be what he would. He'd have loads and loads of followers on Instagram. He'd be all over uh, the media. He'd be held up as somebody who was completely amazing. Everywhere he went, crowds were flocking around him to hear what he was saying, to listen to him, to see what he was doing, what was the next miracle that he was going to do. Luke 4 verse 5, he's in Galilee and he's teaching in a synagogue and everyone just praises him. In Luke 4 22, he's in Nazareth, he's moving around quite a lot at this point uh, and it says that everybody was amazed at the amazing words that came from his lips. What a guy. In um, Luke chapter 4 verse 32, he's now in Capernaum and he's moving around and people are amazed at the authority by which he drives a demon out of another person. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus has healed a man with leprosy and news about him has spread and crowds and crowds of people gather to listen to him, to see what he's going to do. But as his reputation, as his celebrity builds, so does the flack and the criticism that comes with that celebrity. He gets a huge amount of flack and criticism from the religious leaders or the Pharisees. And through uh, the end of chapter 4 and 5 of Luke's Gospel, we begin to see how everywhere Jesus now goes, we have this sort of first century version of trolls who are watching him and criticizing his every move. He cannot say anything or do anything without them picking up on the things that he's doing. And this is really seen prevalently in this passage that we just heard read from Luke chapter 6. His critics are just everywhere, and they're watching, and they're spying, and they're waiting, 
for another moment to weigh in, to catch him out. And one of their favorite areas to criticize him on is the Sabbath. What's the big deal about the Sabbath? You'll know uh, that one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 is this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Sabbath is something uh, that started right at the beginning of time when God said to rest. Sabbath is a time of rest. Sabbath is a time of recreation. And it's a gift from God It was something that was given to us. It's not just a rule. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're designed to work from a place of rest. And that's why Sabbath was given as a gift. And Jesus thinks Sabbath is a good thing. He's not anti-Sabbath. He's got no argument with people about the Sabbath in itself. But he does take issue with these like layers of legalism and rules that uh, the leaders, the Jewish leaders at the time, had put on the Sabbath. You see, over time, the Jews had piled over this command to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They piled onto that command a whole load of other like people-made rules, man-made rules, not God-made rules. You can do that on the Sabbath, but you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can do that on the Sabbath, but you can't do that on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leader's big beef with Jesus is that he and his disciples are not complying precisely to these rules that they've laid on that command. How? Well, the Pharisees uh, have seen Jesus' disciples. They've spotted Jesus' disciples walking through a grain field with Jesus on the Sabbath. And the, the disciples, as they walk uh, with Jesus, are picking up grains of corn and they're rubbing them between their hand and then they're eating these grains of corn. Absolutely shocking, isn't it? Are you shocked? Yeah, I'm shocked as well. Absolutely shocking. Actually, to me, that sounds absolutely glorious. I'm like, how lovely, walking along with Jesus. I'd love that. Walk with Jesus, pick a few grains of corn. I don't know whether I'd like to eat raw corn, but anyway. uh, Having a chat with Jesus, it sounds beautiful. It sounds a beautiful image to us. And the disciples probably saw it like that as well. They were like, wow, we've got this special. We've got this one-to-one time with Jesus. We're away from everybody. We're walking together. He's listening to what I've got to say, and I'm listening to him. What an incredible time of Sabbath this is. But these religious leaders, they were all out to get Jesus. And so basically, they're accusing the disciples of doing work on the Sabbath because they've picked grain. And it says in the rules that you cannot pick grain, you cannot reap grain on the Sabbath. And then they've rubbed that Sabbath between the hands. And so what they're saying is you've threshed the corn. That means you've sort of beaten the husks off the corn. So by rubbing it in the hand, you are working. You're working. And the rules say you cannot reap and you cannot thresh on a Sabbath. And in their self-righteousness, the Pharisees are just throwing whatever they can at Jesus. 
It's like they're accusing Jesus of the worst ever sin. How dare your disciples pick and eat food on the Sabbath? We would never do that. Because what is the worst sin? Think about it for a moment. What is the worst sin? The worst sin is the sin that you never commit. The worst sin is the sin that I never commit. The worst sin is the one that we can sit and judge others on. And then we read in verses 6 to 9 that on another Sabbath, uh, Jesus is in the synagogue and there was a man whose right hand is withered and shriveled up uh, and Jesus heals him right in front of all those people that are trying to catch him out. And there's a problem there because the rules say that you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath unless they're about to die. You cannot heal somebody on the Sabbath unless they're about to die. And this man just had a shriveled hand, so it was doubtful that he was about to die. So Jesus has broken the rules again by healing this guy. And Jesus is like, I don't care. I don't care what you think about me. This is not going to go out there. I'm not about presenting the right image or doing the right thing. But I'm all about showing compassion to that person that needed healing. I'm all about mercy. I'm all about showing people the love of God. I'm all about bringing life and wholeness and healing. And I, and I cannot uh, do anything but that because that is who I am. Listen to this, verse 5. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So I'm all about healing. I'm all about compassion. I'm all about mercy, even on the Sabbath, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. The Sabbath is all about me. I have authority over the Sabbath. And so what we see Jesus showing is that he is authentically who he is, even in a really hostile environment. That is resilience to me. He's been 40 days uh, being tempted in the wilderness. He knows what pain is. He knows what suffering is. And alongside that, he is securing his identity. He is the son of the father. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Jesus is like the exception to any of these rules. He doesn't abide by normal man-made rules. He's above them because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the, uh, the exception to the rule because the Sabbath day is for him. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He is the king. And so it's like he wears this badge of identity in this hostile environment. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, there you go. That's a badge for you. But I wonder how does this passage speak to us? All of us who have given our lives to Jesus have, if you like, a badge of identity that we can wear. And it says on it, forgiven. It says chosen. It says child of the king and a whole load of other things as well. Knowing who you are in Christ, it helps us to face the flack of life, to face the storms of life that come and to be boldly who we are, knowing that we are a child of the king.
made me think of the story that Jesus told of the wise and foolish builders and how um, one person built their house on a rock and the other person built their house on the sand. And their houses were both faced by the same inclement weather. A flood comes and basically smashes against their houses. But what's the difference? The thing that made the difference was the foundations that those two houses were built on. One was built on rock, one was built on sand. And the house with the weak foundations is the one that fell down. Who is your identity in? And then there's something powerful in this passage about Sabbath, isn't there? What Jesus is challenging is how the rules have taken the power out of the Sabbath. And this world needs Sabbath. I need Sabbath. You need Sabbath. We need to find that deep rest that comes from taking time apart. We need to find that deep rest that comes from taking time just being with God. And that'll help us to be resilient that will give us some really great foundations so that we can withstand whatever storms of life that come our way. I want to tell you about something that didn't appear on my Facebook or Instagram story this summer. In August, uh, completely out of the blue, uh, my mum was diagnosed uh, with something called acute myeloid leukemia, and it's a pretty grim form of cancer. Uh, And we found out on a Sunday uh, after she'd fainted while she was preaching, there you go, and uh, she was taken to hospital for a couple of tests just to, you know, make sure she was all right, and then she didn't leave hospital for six weeks after that. Uh, And she spent the first week in hospital going through test after test after procedure after procedure, uh, one after the other. And towards the end of that first week, I went down and spent three days with her in Leeds uh, in hospital. She found out lots of the results of the things, um, the tests and procedures that she'd had. uh, And we found out from her amazing medical team what the future might hold for her. And it was a hugely draining and emotional three days. And if you've ever been through anything similar, you'll know how that feels. It was a hugely draining and emotional three days for us all. And I came home from those three days feeling absolutely exhausted. In fact, uh, on the Sunday, I came back on the Saturday and on the Sunday, I was meant to be preaching, but thankfully Dave swapped with me earlier in the week, and I was leading, and I cannot remember anything that happened on that Sunday, so I'm really sorry if you're here on August the 18th and I just spoke a load of rubbish. Uh, apologies about that. I was completely exhausted. But what worried me about me was, yes, the prospect of what lay ahead for my mum and the treatment that she would have to face but also how I could be the best support for her that I could be when after having three days with her, I was a complete and utter wreck. And perhaps surprisingly, I found that the answer was Sabbath. In order to be resilient, I I needed to make sure that I had Sabbath. Even with all the trips uh, down to Leeds to fit in, I need Sabbath. I don't need a Sunday off. 
That doesn't really work when you're a vicar. But I needed a rest area for my soul. I needed to make sure that I had time to just step back and to be refreshed. To step back and be refilled by God. To let God recreate me. That's what Sabbath is. I needed for me time to potter about and to cook and to make nice food and to hang out with my children and to sit in my summer house and drink tea and see a friend to have Sabbath time so that I could be resilient enough to face with mum the ups and downs of the weeks and months ahead. I'd be zero use to anybody if I was just running on empty. In Mark Buchanan's book, The Rest of God, great title, he says that the golden rule of the Sabbath is this, that we cease from what is necessary and embrace what gives us life. Sabbath is about ceasing from what is necessary and embracing what gives us life. Sabbath, a true Sabbath, a Jesus-style Sabbath, not following a set of rules and regulations. It's about resting from your normal, whatever that looks like for you. And it'll look like something different for all of us. It's about putting down our phone, if that takes up a lot of our time. It's about switching off the telly. It's about not just planning and thinking, oh, I'd really like to spend some time with Jesus, perhaps reading my Bible or praying or listening to some worship music, but actually doing it. It's about eating well and being with friends or being on your own, whatever's right for you. It's about refreshment and worship and restoration. What does that look like for you? What would that look like for you? What makes you feel refreshed and restored and refilled? I have a busy life. I have a full-time job and a few children and friends and lovely things like that in my life. But if I don't plan my time, I would never have a Sabbath because there's too many other things that pull at my time. Maybe you're like that. I need rest for my soul. So we need to surrender our time We need to surrender our busyness and our work and our emotions and our phones or our social media to have Sabbath. I truly believe that part of the reason that many of us today have low resilience is because that when we take the foot off the pedal, we collapse. And actually, some of us never learn to put in this routine of rest and work and busyness and rest and work and busyness and friends and our own as well. We need to take our foot off the pedal and find that God place, that Sabbath, that soul rest. Some of us might go, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that tomorrow. I think that is one of the dangerous, most dangerous things we can say as a Christian. I'll do it tomorrow. Because actually Jesus says, come and follow me now. He says, come and be my disciple now. He says, the kingdom of God is here now. He says, now I have come and brought you life uh, and life in all its fullness. And he says, come and have a Sabbath with me now. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't prevaricate. Just this week uh, to finish, 
uh, up on my Instagram post, uh, pop the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. He's well worth following. If you don't follow Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, do. Canterbury, do. He's great. Uh, but he posted a quote from a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, who said this. Does anything matter more in our hurried, mostly contemporary life than that every Christian find time daily of real quiet for their souls waiting upon God? Does anything matter more in our hurried, mostly contemporary life than that every Christian find time daily of real quiet for the, for the souls waiting upon God? So let's search out that Sabbath rest, that time for our souls to rest, whatever that might look like in your life, in your daily and weekly life.